Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. It was one week after the Tylenol murders, October 6, 1982. One week since seven people died and thousands of leads came in through the tip lines. But law enforcement still had no real suspect. Until a letter arrived that changed everything. The envelope it came in was addressed to Johnson & Johnson, That's the parent company of McNeil Consumer Products, the company that actually makes Tylenol. It was sent through the regular mail and arrived at J&J's New Jersey office. Then, because it mentioned McNeil, the letter was routed in a company mail sack to that office in Pennsylvania. When the mail clerk there opened it, he saw a handwritten letter that was one page long. It was neatly pinned in all-cap letters that tilted slightly to the right. Well, I have it in front of me right here. Roy Lane Jr. was an FBI agent assigned to the task force, the one that studied chemistry instead of law. He says, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting in store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. And then the next paragraph is about where to transfer the money to. It said, if you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account 8449597. It looked, to authorities at least, like maybe the letter was both an extortion and a confession. I'm Christy Gutowski. And I'm Stacy St. Clair. This is Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Episode 3, The Suspects. The extortion letters seemed like it could be a clue into the murders. But the problem was, it was unsigned. It could have been written by anyone. The FBI wasn't certain whether it came from the killer or not. But one detail, at least, initially made them skeptical. 
The author of the letter suggested that it was easy to get both potassium and sodium cyanide into the pills. But the tainted pills only had potassium cyanide. Plus, it had been a week without a trace of the killer. Why would they send a letter now? Lane had some ideas. We thought, well, maybe it's just for the money. Maybe just somebody taking advantage of the situation. But investigators were following every lead. Was the person just a crank who was playing games and tweaking law enforcement? We had no idea, but we were, you know, hell-bent on figuring out which of those theories was accurate. That's Jeremy Margolis. He's the former assistant U.S. attorney, the one who said he didn't have time for the drama on the Tylenol task force. Were we curious about why that letter would be written? He and Lane worked alongside each other. Was this person actually responsible for it? There were some clues, like the bank account number mentioned in the letter, which, it turned out, belonged to a business in Chicago called Lakeside Travel. It was a travel agency. They booked flights and rented cars for you before this could all be done online. There was also a postage meter ID on the envelope. Here's how it works. Companies register postage meters with the U.S. Postal Service. They each get a unique seven-digit number. If you used a company meter, that unique number would show up imprinted on the envelope. In this case, the number here was pretty easy to track. It also led to Lakeside Travel. It didn't take long to find the owner of Lakeside, a man named Frederick Miller McKay, the heir to the Miller Brewing Fortune. Yes, the beer. Did McKay write the letter? Was he the killer? McKay lived in suburban Chicago. And when the task force sat down with him, they learned that Lakeside Travel had gone out of business earlier that year and that the bank account had been closed. Also, the letter was not from suburban Chicago. It was sent from New York. It also seemed like McKay didn't have a motive to do something like this. He professed to know nothing whatsoever about the letter or the Tylenol killings. And uh, we became quickly convinced that that was true. The task force ruled him out. So back to the clues. Looking at the postage meter, it wasn't exactly kept under lock and key. Then the questions turned to, well, who at Lakeside Travel would have had access to the postage meter? And who would have known the bank account number? And then uh, let's talk about anybody at Lakeside Travel who was odd, different, problematic, fired under questionable circumstances. Anybody you can think of uh, who might be the person who would have done this. Around this time, the task force had started using a new technique, criminal profiling. Today, it seems like all kinds of agencies use this, at least according to TV. Turn on just about any police procedural and you're likely to see a detective pour over every detail of a crime scene to try and understand the person who committed the crime. This technique was pretty new in the early 80s. And one of the first times the FBI used it was on a profile of the Tylenol killer. The person who perpetrated this would most likely have been treated for mental health issues. The person who committed this would most likely have attacked a parent, attacked animals, and and, uh, cruelty to animals. It wasn't a profile of the person who wrote the extortion letter. 
but the FBI wasn't sure if the letter writer and the killer were one and the same. And to be clear, criminal profiling is kind of controversial. There's no clear evidence that it's effective. And even back in 1982, some officers on the Tylenol case scoffed at it. Roy Lane Jr. found it very helpful, though. And uh, the last point that they wanted to strike home was that the person who committed this is enjoying the attention right now. And the fact that he or she um, had outsmarted the law enforcement. And there was one more thing in the profile. The FBI wrote that this person would be likely to hold a grudge. They might be motivated by revenge. So with this in mind, the FBI started interviewing former Lakeside employees. And soon, task force members like Jeremy Margolis had names to work with. The Richardsons, wife being a former temporary employee, and uh, the irate husband who was furious that uh, his wife's last paycheck bounced because the company went out of business. Nancy Richardson was a bookkeeper at Lakeside. She'd only started there in early 1982. But she had a front row seat to the company's demise, including hearing rumors that McKay had been siphoning off Lakeside funds for personal reasons. When the company did go broke, Nancy got a final paycheck for $512. She went to cash it at a currency exchange. And and she did, matter of fact. Uh, And the check bounced. Once the currency exchange realized there were no funds in the Lakeside account, they wanted their money back from Nancy. But this was money she earned worked for. She paid back about $100, but the currency exchange wanted it in full, so they sued her to get it back. Nancy's husband, Robert, was livid, and he seemed a lot angrier than the actual employees themselves, the ones who had been stiffed. He began organizing his wife's former colleagues. And then he filed some grievances with the Illinois Labor Department. Robert acted as the group's leader, he explained to the hearing officer that McKay had personal accounts. They should just take the owed wages from there, he said. But the hearing officer didn't buy it. And he lost. At the end of the hearing, the owner, McKay, walked in. A former Lakeside employee who was there remembers them all yelling at each other. And the whole exchange ended with McKay allegedly threatening Nancy. Her husband, Robert, filed that one away. Later that day on the bus, Robert said he was going to find someone who would investigate McKay for wrongdoing. The attorney general, or whomever he could find, he'd find someone. In the final days of Lakeside, before it went bankrupt, Nancy also had filed something away. The FBI said she grabbed some blank envelopes and stamped them with the company's postage meter. That's how the Johnson & Johnson extortion letter had the Lakeside ID numbers on it, because the stamped envelopes had been stolen. And they also now realized it was Robert Richardson who had sent the letter to get back at McKay. Now they had a motive for the letter. Revenge. And a name to double down on. Robert Richardson. So investigators went out to find the Richardsons. They checked the last known address that they had for them, 
549 Belden Avenue in Chicago, a five-story stone building with large leafy trees out front. But the Richardsons had moved out one month after their confrontation at the hearing. On September 4th, about a month before the murders, they told their friends they were moving to Amarillo, Texas. But they did not move to Amarillo, Texas. Today, it wouldn't take long to get more information about someone online. Work history, relationship status, hobbies, location. But in 1982, the task force had to rely on a literal paper trail. And they had little to go on, with no idea where the Richardsons were, who they might be with, or even what they looked like, until they came across another clue. The clue was on page 13 of an edition of the Chicago Tribune published earlier that July. It was a first-person column, a bit of a poem, actually, called A Slice of Chicago Life. It was a list of things the author observed while people-watching on State and Madison in Chicago. He wrote, One pretty girl tying her shoe and spilling her purse. One blue and white police car sitting empty, windows open. Seven begging pigeons waddling and cooing. 324, the time at the corner. My bus is here. And so we went to Chicago Tribune, and sure enough, they had had prepared an article, and it had his photo. One black and white photo of a man with a beard. He had a receding hairline, a serious expression, and a jacket and tie. And right there on the byline, it said, Robert Richardson. The task force got their hands on a photo of Nancy Richardson, too. So that was the photo we put on the wanted list. They sent the wanted poster everywhere. Chicago, New York, across the country. It went to other law enforcement agencies and to the national media. Then the FBI waited to see what would shake out. This was the biggest story in the country, with or without the wanted poster. And the coverage of the search for the killer became kind of an ambient backdrop to regular life. This was no less true for a police sergeant in Kansas City, Missouri. That October, Sergeant David Barton was home with the news on. And my kids were there, and I'm laying on the couch, just tired. And Dan Rather, I distinctly remember it was Dan Rather, CBS News, A task force of more than 100 local, state, and federal investigators is looking into seven deaths linked to poisoned extra-strength Tylenol capsules. They are checking what one official called a myriad of leads. The newscast cut to headshots of a man and a woman, both wearing glasses. The wanted posters. Investigators also said they are seeking these people, Robert and Nancy Richardson, the likely authors of the million-dollar extortion letter that Tylenol's makers received last week. And I rolled off the couch and jumped up. And my daughter, as a matter of fact, still remembers me doing this, yelling, God damn it, that's Jim Lewis. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. 
where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brobble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. James William Lewis. Barton knew a lot about him. Actually, the previous winter, Barton obtained an arrest warrant for Lewis. But before he could grab him, Lewis had fled his home in Missouri. Now, here he was on national TV almost a year later, apparently using an alias, Robert Richardson. Barton grabbed the phone to call the FBI. Barton saw Robert Richardson on the news on October 13, 1982, and on that same broadcast, reporters broke news of a totally separate suspect. Chicago police arrested this man, 48-year-old... The week prior, the same day that the task force actually learned about the extortion letter, the Chicago police also got their own tip. Charlie Ford was part of the crew chasing leads. Ford and his partner Jimmy Gilday were the officers who responded to the death of flight attendant Paula Prince. They were the ones who skipped the task force meetings. The Chicago police had gotten a tip, and Ford and Gilday were the ones to follow it. They had a bartender on a bar on Lincoln Avenue. It was the Oxford Pub on the city's north side. He calls us up, and we talked to him personally, and he says, listen... Two regulars told the owner that their friend Roger had been acting strange lately. Erratic and despondent were the words they used. And they said that he had picked up some cyanide about six months ago for some kind of home project. The caller gave the police the man's full name. Roger Arnold. Oh, that sounds like a pretty good tip and clue to me. Says, okay, next time you see this guy, give us a call. The Chicago police sent officers to Lincoln Avenue, where they showed Arnold's photo to bartenders. Arnold usually wore a Greek fishing hat, the kind with the short, round brim. Five days later, now we're at about two weeks since the murders, another call came in. This time from another pub, Lily's, in Lincoln Square. The caller said that Arnold was in the bar, right now. So we shoot over there, we walk in. The bar's pretty crowded. Jimmy Gilday. He identifies the guy to us, uh, you know, covertly. Kind of a called skinny guy, wore glasses, kind of goofy looking. He had salt and pepper hair and a beard. And we could see right away, looking at the guy, he wasn't wired too tight. He was like, you know, a little, a little wacky. Just the way he acted, you could see, was, he was, his bubble wasn't on beam, if you know what I mean. We took him to Area 6, and the detective's office is upstairs. And, and is he cuffed or? Yeah, we had him hooked to the wall. They had a ring. You had him cuffed on one hand, and he'd take the other cuff and put it through the ring to secure him. He was pretty docile. He wasn't, he wasn't agitated or excited or anything. Ford and Gilday told Arnold someone had dropped a dime on him, that Arnold might be the Tylenol killer. 
because he boasted at a bar that he had cyanide at home. We kind of schmoozed the guy, you know, you know, only a criminal mastermind could do this, and this guy had to be a genius, and he's, oh, you know, he's, he's, you know, we're like puffing him up a little bit. But Arnold told them he didn't do it. He swears he wasn't involved. Ford and Gilday decided to hang on to him anyway, to work him toward a confession. They continued to talk to him that night and started to build a picture of this man's life. They learned that Arnold had gotten a divorce a few months prior. He'd lost his home to his ex-wife in the breakup. He'd been pretty depressed ever since. He just struck me as being real, real resentful of, you know, his lot in life. And he was kind of a a broken little man, really, I thought, you know. You know, he's not going to get a gun and walk in and shoot people. But poisoning? Yeah, maybe. As for the Tylenol murders, the link between Arnold and the killings did seem a bit stronger than a feeling. Here's what the detectives found. Arnold worked at Jewel Foods, the local grocery chain where some of the tainted Tylenol was sold. He worked in the warehouse, though, not the stores, loading and unloading trucks. And, according to the manager there, Arnold had recently said he was angry. He talked about wanting to throw acid or poison people. Plus, he worked with Mary Reiner's father at the warehouse. Mary had just given birth to her fourth child days before she died of cyanide poisoning. Arnold and her father occasionally ate lunch together. Here's another connection. Arnold had visited his then-wife at a psychiatric hospital that was across the street from the store where Mary Reiner bought her tainted Tylenol. He also was familiar with the areas where some of the tainted capsules were sold. And to top it off, Roger Arnold admitted that he bought cyanide recently from a mail-order place in Wisconsin. But Arnold insisted he had gotten rid of it a few months ago, before the murders. The evidence, the circumstantial evidence at least, had started to pile up. Cyanide? Check. A connection with one of the victims? Check. Made incriminating statements about poison? Check that one off, too. Ford and Gilday hoped that this was their chance to solve this case. They headed out to search Arnold's home on the south side of Chicago, and they took Arnold with them. It was an old frame house. And uh, he gave us the key, to, so we got in there and, and, and searched the place. And we were in there for about an hour, hour and a half. We found all kinds of order forms for chemical companies, order chemicals. In his basement, he's got beakers and vials. And he had all kinds of books. One of them was called The Poor Man's James Bond. One section of it explained how to make potassium cyanide, the kind used in the poisonings. They also found an airplane ticket to Thailand, leaving on October 15th. That was just a few days away, a one-way ticket, plus four handguns and one rifle. Uh, it, it didn't surprise me when we found what we did in there, because it looked like, yeah, he's the guy. Why? What, what would have been his motive? He's nuts. He was nuts. He just wanted, you know, you have, you have mass murders all the time. You just kill people because they, well, they think they can get away with it, you know? prove to themselves that they're a criminal mastermind. After the search, Ford and Gilday were buttering them up to confess. They continued that buddy-buddy routine. 
you do it a lot with the, you get these suspects, you, you, you schmooze them. Before getting back to the station, they took Roger Arnold to the old school Italian joint Riccobini's. It's a Chicago institution. They got the special, the steak sandwich, breaded with red sauce. You wind up and you die. I'm sick of going out on a date. <laughs> except, except going to first base with them puts them in a penitentiary. <laughs> Ford and Gilday went back to the station with Arnold and all their evidence. They cataloged what they got with full bellies and planned to keep interviewing him the next day. But the next day, everything changed. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Voters know that bad weather, like storms, lightning, and wind, can turn a fun day on the water into a challenge. But what if you had satellite-delivered weather data giving you the full picture of what's around you, even when you're offshore and out of cell range? With SiriusXM Marine, get up-to-date weather and fishing info directly on your boat's display. Plus, you can add SiriusXM Entertainment. Visit SiriusXM.com marine to learn more. Detective Jimmy Gilday had left Roger Arnold in a room and gone to handle other tasks. By the time he got back, word spread that a suspect was in custody for the Tylenol murders. The station was packed. A lot of the police bosses were there. That's when we went back and talked to him, and uh, we said, anybody come in here and bother you? He goes, well, there's a bunch of people came in here and talked to me. Well, that's a no-no. You know, you don't go to, I don't talk to your suspect or interviewee without asking you. This was a tense time. It had been two weeks without a real suspect. And the pressure to find the killer and solve the murders was building by the day. And sure, let's not forget about the FBI's top suspect, the author of the extortion letter, James Lewis. But right now, Lewis was nowhere to be found. But here in Chicago was Roger Arnold, right there in lockup. Arnold, with his cyanide project, his anger issues, and his connection to at least one of the victims. So the bees swarmed to the honey. You're all trying to make a name for this. I, you know, I'm Deputy Superintendent So-and-so, and I solved this case. We were literally kept out of the room because all the bosses were in there. We never got to talk to them after that. That was it. Has that ever happened to you? In- no. And it's like a parade of fools going in there. Guys are never detectives. They don't know how to interview anybody. And finally, by the time they got done, he's demanding the attorney, and, and an attorney comes in, and now he, he, he clams up. Ford and Gilday were now less free to buddy-buddy it up with Arnold. And public pressure was mounting. 
People needed these murders to be solved in order to feel safe again. But to Ford, it felt like the bigwigs had gotten in the way. If they had left us alone, we probably could have got the guy to flip. He wanted to be, go down in history as being the mastermind, you know, the, the guy that could get, do the crime that he could kill a whole bunch of people and get away with it. But he was denying it, right? Well, we didn't, we didn't put it right on him at the start. If you puffed up his ego enough, he would have gave it up. Ford was sure of it. In my opinion, in my experience, in, in the demeanor, and all, all the evidence absolutely points in my mind that he was absolutely the town law murderer, in my mind. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. For 40 years, Ford had a feeling about Arnold. All the pieces, all the tips, all the clothes, all the, all the arrows, they all pointed towards him. A feeling he held on to. Even after he retired, his investment in the case was just as strong as it had been all those years ago. If I can refresh my memory, I, I could probably remember every crime scene I've been at. But this one here always stayed with me because it was a big, it was a big case and, and we couldn't solve it. When Christy and I started looking into the Tylenol murders, Ford was a very invested source. He would take all of our calls, respond to all of our emails. Oh, by the way, did I tell you guys about this book that was sent to me? <laughs> no. Yeah, look at this. The Tylenol Killer's Theory Number 7. It's got the flow charts in it and mathematical equations. And, uh... He pointed us to documents. Did you ever, you ever get my original case report I wrote up on, on, the, on the crime scene? No, I put a FOIA into CPD today for it, so hopefully they'll, it'll shake it out. Um, Maybe he felt the same urgency we did. We felt that time was running out. And that became even more clear about two weeks after we recorded with Ford. I was waiting for a response to an email I had sent him. But I hadn't heard back yet, which was weird because he had always been so responsive. Hey, Stace. Hey, so your, um, your source was right. Charlie Ford died uh, overnight. Oh. Uh, you know what happened? I hadn't heard from him in a couple of days. Um... His wife, Gail, told us he had had a heart attack. He was 76 years old. Gail told us that he spent his last night alive out to dinner with friends, eating liver and onions. It wasn't Riccobini's, but I'm sure he enjoyed it just the same. We had talked to him four days before. Man, it's like, it really underscores just 40 years and how time is running out yep. this case. This is just going to happen more and more, right? Like as the year in the coming years, more people are going to die, more people's memories are going to, uh, you know, be lost forever. And there were so many people we tried to find for this story. A lot of them were already deceased, or had dementia, or were too sick to really talk to us. More than ever, we were feeling that time really was running out to solve the Tylenol murders, and it turns out. Ford's death would have future implications for the case. But we'll get to that. For now, though, let's go back to October 1982, back when Ford and Gilday felt their access to Arnold had been blocked. Either way, prosecutors didn't have solid evidence to charge Arnold for murder. The case was all circumstantial. So for now, the state's attorney charged him with what they had, failing to register the guns he kept at his house. 
and with assault. Apparently, he had recently pulled a gun on someone during a bar fight. On October 13th, two days after his arrest, Arnold was at his bond hearing. Before he made bond and left, he made a comment. He said he'd like to be in on the homicide of the guy who called the cops on him. Be in on the homicide. That's a quote. Not a great thing for a suspect in a mass murder, a man facing assault and weapons charges, to say as he's released. Arnold didn't know who called the cops on him, but now he was free, and he was pissed. And while he was out, Arnold went and did something that surprised everyone. He proved that he was a killer. For exclusive details about Roger Arnold, the extortion letter, and a transcript of this episode, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol Murders. Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders is executive produced by Will Malnati from Atwell Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by Claire Tai, Jessica Glazer, and Anne-Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Fact-checked by Wudan Yan. Production support from Clementine Ford, Molly Getman, Matt Hickey, Zach Rapone, Andrew Holtzberger, Mark Van Hare, and Seth Richardson. Mixed by Daniel Turek. Original music by Hannes Brown. Reported by us, Stacey St. Clair and Christy Gutowski. Voters know that bad weather, like storms, lightning, and wind, can turn a fun day on the water into a challenge. But what if you had satellite-delivered weather data giving you the full picture of what's around you, even when you're offshore and out of cell range? With SiriusXM Marine, get up-to-date weather and fishing info directly on your boat's display. Plus, you can add SiriusXM Entertainment. Visit SiriusXM.com Marine to learn more. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.